I think one of the things that gives me hope is knowing that as to the best of my ability, I'm living in God's will for my life. Welcome to Tales with the Sales, where we discuss stories that matter because you are living one. I'm your host, Jane DeSales. I'm a writer, poet, and storyteller. It is my pleasure to introduce you to authors as we explore how fiction impacts our lives and culture. My guest today is Rhonda Ortiz. She is a Genesis Award-winning novelist, nonfiction writer, and founding editor of Chrism Press. A native Oregonian, she attended St. John's College in historic Annapolis, Maryland, and now lives in Michigan with her husband and five children, with one on the way. Find her online at RondaOrtiz.com. Her debut novel, In Pieces, has been published by Chrism Press, a historical romance set in colonial Boston. We're here today with Rhonda Ortiz. Good morning, Rhonda. We're so grateful to have you today. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So we're just going to jump right into it because I get so excited to see what kind of quotes our authors bring to the table. So why don't you go ahead and introduce us to this literature that inspired you? All right. So um, this morning I am reading from uh, Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. They called each other by their Christian name were always arm in arm when they walked, pinned up each other's train for the dance, and were not to be divided in the set. And if a raining morning deprived them of other enjoyments, they were still resolute in meeting in defiance of wet and dirt and shut themselves up to read novels together. Yes, novels. For I will not adopt that ungenerous and impolitic custom so common with novel writers of degrading by their contemptuous censure, the very performances to the number of which they are themselves adding, joining with their greatest enemies and bestowing the harshest epithets on such works and scarcely ever permitting them to be read by their own heroine, who, if she accidentally takes up a novel, is sure to turn over its insipid pages with disgust. Alas, if the heroine of one novel be not patronized by the heroine of another, from whom can she expect protection and regard? I cannot approve of it. Let us leave it to the reviewers to abuse such effusions of fancy at their leisure and over every new novel to talk in threadbare strains of the trash with which the press now groans. Let us not desert one another. We are an injured body. Although our productions have afforded more extensive and unaffected pleasure than those of any other literary corporation in the world, no species of composition has been so much decried. I am no novel reader. I seldom look into novels. Do not imagine that I often read novels. It is all very well for a novel. Such is the common cant. And what are you reading, miss? Or in short, Only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed, in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature, the happiest delineation of its varieties, 
the liveliest diffusions of wit and humor are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language. And that is from Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey, her famous defense of the novel. Indeed. (laughs) I think she said it pretty clearly. (laughs) Oh, I don't know. We love Jane Austen. You know, the, I mean, it's just the, the, you know, the, the sarcasm and irony of uh, famous Austen wit. And here it is at work. And I really love it. Some of my favorite novels that I go back to over and over are Jane Austen. So it's the defense of the novel and obviously you being a novelist, but what else just really resonates with you and inspires you in this? So I am an author. Um, I've been writing fiction for about 10 years. Um, I just recently published my first book. I'm also one of the founding editors at Chrism Press, a new imprint for um, with Whitefire Publishing and we... Uh, focusing on um, Catholic and Orthodox uh, inspired fiction, and and so fiction is is very important to me. <laughs> you know that that we we think it's valuable, that we think it has a place in the world, and that it it has a great meaningful contribution to you know life and society at large. Um, that it's good for people to read good stories. I read this in Northanger Abbey when I was in high school. In fact, when I was in high school, Jane Austen was sort of my gateway into the great books. Uh, she, you know, she was the first author that I had read that, you know, I think moving from YA, popular YA at the time into um, an, an, into the literary tradition. And I, I think I read Pride and Prejudice first because everybody does. And then I think I read more Northanger Abbey. Not only did Northanger Abbey ruin me for the Brontes, I can't stand Jane Eyre, which is, you know, I know, I see your big eyes. <laughs> yeah, it's shocking. Um, I, I, you know, in part because Northanger Abbey is a satire on the gothic genre. And I have a great appreciation for the gothic genre, but it's, it's funny uh, thinking about the, the uh, sensationalist novel and um, you have a good friend, good friends who write in this genre. Um, and I very much do appreciate it. But it's interesting, having read that, uh, Northanger Abbey um, really did form my reading preferences at a, at a somewhat young age because I happen to like realism. And the wonderful thing about Austen is that she is she's steeped in, she's not a romantic. She is, even though she was writing at the time of the romantics, she herself is not one. The second thing about Northanger Abbey and about this particular passage is just the importance of the popular. And this is one of my my big hobby horses is opening up fiction for everybody. Good stories without being so inaccessible to I think common readers. You know, that this is as Aristotle says in the Poetics, you know, that storytelling and and looking at imitation through the story is one of the most pleasurable ways to learn. And people enjoy looking at what he calls imitations to learn about themselves, to learn about the world, and that this is this is accessible to everybody, not just the philosopher. And so, you know, and I think there's something about this wonderful defense of the novel where Austin is decrying the, you know, certain academic prejudices. <laughs> and, you know, uh, oh, it's only a novel, you know, oh, but if she had the spectator now, you know, if she was, you know, reading something extremely boring and completely unnatural and some, you know, about things that nobody cares about, she would have produced that volume with pride. You know, they were going through a big Gothic novel craze at the time. And that, uh, that this was somehow shameful, that novels were shameful, that novels were, 
you know, trash is trash fiction and a waste of people's time. And that only silly women read novels. And, you know, even as she is satirizing the Gothic, she also is showing how wonderful the novel is, you know, that she wants to emphasize that. No, no, no. The novel is a really wonderful forum, you know, for for learning, for the display of wit, as she says, and the examination of human nature, that this is a place where we can depict it and look at it and learn from it. One of the other things that I noticed in that passage as well is that not only were they reading novels, but that this was part of their relationship. <laughs> no, I might. That it gave them a shared language to communicate and further their bond together, that fiction wasn't even just the personal, but it was the public as well. Right. And I think for Catherine, um, for Catherine Moreland, you know, the central character in Northanger Abbey, she comes from a very, you know, practical, down to earth country Parsons family. And that this is her, she picks up, she, she discovers the novel when she's in, you know, Bath, England on a vacation, basically, that her neighbors have taken her to. And Isabella Thorpe, her friend, is the first kind of sort of cosmopolitan person that she has really met. And the first duplicitous person she's ever met. She's never encountered a person quite like this. But the novel actually gives her some frame of reference for understanding not only Isabella, but also the villain of the piece, General Tilney, who's the father of the hero, Henry Tilney, whom she likens to one of these gothic villains. And what's interesting about that is she's she's actually, in some sense, misled by her imagination, ultimately in the end, because she she attributes more crime to him than he's he, than is actually warranted. But on the other hand, the novel actually gives her a framework for understanding the fact that he's really actually not a good man. And she's never, again, she's never encountered people like this, you know, and the novel is what gives her that place. And so her instincts are good. The novel gives her some some language. And then the next step then is making the distinction between, okay, here are the pictures we see in the novel and here's real life and making finer distinctions between the two. And so, yeah, so, I mean, it is, there's the bond of friendship uh, that's fostered, um, but there's also for her, there's actually just a, an incredible growing process of coming of age, coming out into the world, meeting people, you know, coming outside of the the familiar bounds of her own provincial life. Uh, And that is ultimately what leads to her ability to get married too. Like this is what is a preparation for life, life as a married woman. It's almost like stories matter. It is almost like stories matter. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and that leads me into talking about your work that you have put out in pieces as your first work of fiction that's been published, and it is historical romance. So why don't you tell me a little bit about that work and how you see this playing into the whole milieu of affecting culture? Um, Well, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, So In Pieces is the first installment of Molly Chase, which is the name of the series, a historical continuity series. And the series features romance, family drama, society drama, political suspense, and lots of humor because I like humor. And it, it is set in 1793 Boston. The story opens eight weeks after Molly Chase, the main character, finds her father's dead body in his study. He has committed suicide in a particularly gruesome way. 
And as a result, she is suffering from what we would call severe PTSD. And then her childhood friend and merchant sailor, Josiah Robb, arrives home from sea. He discovers her in the throes of this and decides to take her home to be cared for by his family. And the story goes from there. And uh, this all sounds very serious, and it is, um, but In Pieces also contains a great active plot involving spies, politics, chase scenes, fights in hidden alleys, that sort of thing. And Molly and Josiah have a kind of a great rapport. They're pretty funny together. In fact, I would say um, they definitely fall into the, you know, childhood friends slash frenemies, um, brother and sister tropes. Uh, you could you could say that this is Anne and Gilbert, you know, that um, the, the setup really is Molly vacillates back and forth between him being her best friend and uh, being the most annoying person in the world. Uh, on Josiah's part, He's loved her just like Gilbert since the very first moment as, you know, Anne and Gilbert and cracks that, you know, slate on his head. Um, And that is when, you know, of course, Gilbert is madly in love with Anne secretly these boyhood loves. And so Josiah has that kind of affection for Molly. That's the setup. What's interesting about this, okay, this is a, um, this is pop fiction. When I wrote it, I, I used to joke with people. I said, there's a spectrum on the romance genre scale. And one of it, I, you know, of course I brought in Jane Austen today. At one end of the spectrum is Jane Austen. Jane Austen is really the novelist who sort of established contemporary romance conventions and tropes, you know? So she's, she's the person who's really responsible for solidifying the romance as a genre. So on one end of the spectrum, you have the genius of Jane Austen. On the other end of the spectrum with, uh, with romances, with love stories, are novels with bare-chested Fabio on the cover. And there's like, you know, a woman hanging off of him. You know, we have Pulp Fiction on the other end. I used to joke with people. I said, I'm aiming for Jane Austen and hopefully I'll land somewhere in the middle. And I think I did. I got, I got the middle at least. We're not, we don't have Fabio on the cover of this book. Um, and so that's, you know, um, that was my, my, my ultimate goal. Uh, so it is, it is very accessible book. It is, but at the same time, not vapid. I have to say that I thoroughly enjoyed reading in pieces. It is a page turner and it does have all the things that you talked about. I feel like the historical setting is both immersive and educational for the reader and lets us engage a society that is different than our own, but the roots of our own at the same time and really kind of ask questions about that and engage in issues of mental health, engage in issues of race relations, and see how that even impacts our lives today and our culture today. Yeah, you know, the the wonderful thing about writing, being a contemporary person, writing historical fiction or looking back on the historical context, that it does allow the historical novelist has the ability of looking at contemporary issues in a different setting that is, I wouldn't say neutral, but there's there's something about it where you, you can look at it in a little bit more object, objective light without people getting irritated. So if I think about something like uh, race relations, which does come up in this book, the context is Josiah as a merchant sailor. He rises to the ranks of his profession. And, and interestingly, also does a little bit of trading on the side. And this is how he makes accumulates enough money to actually do things like buy a house and he's trying to make all this money feel worthy as a suitor that he's not going to, you know, Molly, Molly grew up in some affluence. And this was, this is actually rooted historically interesting. Um, there are ship owners who would give their sailors a little bit of extra money 
and they would in some cargo space and they would do this. So anyway, so Josiah does this and he trades in sugar. And now this is 1793. This is still when we talk sugar, when we're talking sugar, we're talking about the West Indies. Slavery is still going very strong. You still have the slave trade, uh, the sugar trade, you know, drove the slave trade because sugar, the production of sugar is brutal. And people had the people who were involved in it had a very short life expectancy. And so we have in the story that Josiah had traded in sugar and that had at some point in his, you know, as an eighth, as a young man had had an opportunity to see a sugar plantation and that, that changes him, you know, that he has a crisis of conscience. It carries his crisis of conscience into the beginning of the story. And, and so as we move through the book of In Pieces, we do have the dynamics of race relations, not only within the, the context of Josiah's backstory and his own sense of like, he made a lot of money off of people who were treated really badly and he doesn't know what to do with the money that he made um, just sitting in his floorboards, you know, <laughs> just hiding. Um, <clears throat> but we also meet people who had been former slaves in Boston um, who were involved in various things that eventually Josiah will also be involved in. And so these become these become these people become colleagues. You know, I get to approach the dynamics of race relations through a historical context, through the, specifically through the context of Massachusetts, where slavery was essentially declared illegal by the courts in 1783, but people still live with all of the, you know, the, the, these, these, these things don't just, you know, disappear up and disappear. We still have that context. And it's nice, you know, because you could say, well, this is, this is the, this is the context. These would have been the social mores. This would have been the situation people found themselves in. You can look at what are the goals in the black community at the time. Uh, for one, one example, they were wanting to build a school for themselves. Uh, that was that was one thing that that people were working toward. Um, and so you can, you know, and I was able to, you know, bring that in and <laughs> bring that into into the story, into my characters. And again, this is a, this is something of a subplot, but it was it is nice to be able to examine these things in a context that people don't feel as threatened or contentious because it's not contemporary. Absolutely. I think that fiction is a great way of developing empathy in so many ways. And your book is a great example of that, that people can kind of wrestle with these difficult ideas and experiences without any risk of harm to their brother or sister out on the street or in the community, that that they can work through their feelings about these experiences and the history and things like that, which I think is so important. Right. Have you ever read the book Sugar Blues by chance? No, I haven't. It, <laughs> you can tell me a little bit about it. It's nonfiction, but it's basically about the history of the sugar trade and stuff. It was written in the 1970s. And okay. it also talks about like sugar in the diet and things like that, mm -hmm. you know. But a, a big part of the book is actually the, the social and economic ramifications of the sugar trade on slavery and on human dignity. Right. Yeah. No, and it is um – and that was that was actually part of my research um, when I was developing some of these these various plot lines was exactly that. Uh, sugar plays a huge part in the whole series. I can't give away too much because you know spoilers. Don't <laughs> spoilers. Don't. We need to put the sugar trade is really important to it, uh, or at least it's a driving it's a driving motivation for the bad guys <laughs> in the story. Oh, very fine. I'm looking forward to that. You know, a million years ago when I was working on my bachelor's degree, I was taking a class in women's studies and my topic of research was actually how 
the sugar industry, not historically, but modern sugar industry in northeastern Brazil, how that industry itself affected um, how women were able to parent, Mm. how family structures worked, Mm -hmm. how much time women could spend breastfeeding, how much time infants spent alone. Because Mm. even in the modern age, the demands of the sugar industry on its employees, even without slavery. Mm-hmm. So it's it it. I was very excited when I saw that. I mean, not excited about the historical reality of what happens to people, but sure, excited that someone was delving into that. I'm like, yay! <laughs> well, you know, and again, it's I, you know, it's it is it is nice to say like, well, this is a historical reality. This is a fact. There's a certain beautiful amount of freedom in being able to say this is the fact of the history historical context. And here are my characters moving within that milieu, you know, being able to do it without coming in really on the top too heavily with the narratorial voice saying, and this is bad, you know? Um, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that it is bad. I think specifically from Josiah's point of view, he traded in it and then found out a little bit more and is and, and doesn't know what to do with money that he he feels, you know, is blood money and working through the kind of crisis in conscience. And ultimately, in the end of this book, in book one, the decision that he makes. So Josiah in this book, he has two problems. He has a woman problem and he has a job problem. Um, and so this is on the job problem side of the story. And the job problem, the solution to the job problem is also tied to being given an opportunity to do something with this money that is good and to make amends. It's a really wonderful arc to write. And in a way that in particular, the the characters, the mass, the Boston side, you know, again, we're in Boston in this one, that the people who were former slaves are able to provide that path forward is also good. There's an, an enabling of like, they're, you know, we're part of the pot solution here. Um, it's not condescending in any way, shape or form. It's, it's actually like, no, here's how you do this. They're given agency. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is the thing, like, for the sake of your listeners, it's probably worth knowing. I should probably say this. I am, I am white. In fact, I am, I am the dreaded wasp culturally, you know, I'm a Catholic convert even. So I even have that P still in there, you know, kind of deep down. Uh, and you wouldn't necessarily know that from my last name, which is Ortiz. Uh, my husband is New York, Italian, Puerto Rican. So that's where that comes from. As a novelist writing, writing across racial lines, and there's always an inherent danger in that because you say, well, what do you know about it? You know, <laughs> me, you know, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, what do you know about it? But actually, there's a really, again, there's a really wonderful thing. The, the best thing I can do for the characters and for the sake of the story and with regards what have become really contentious and sensitive subject is A, research, 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 B, reading viewpoints, not my own, just to get inside, you know, get inside the head of my characters. And then doing my characters the favor and doing them like in showing them the proper dignity of developing them fully as characters with positive attributes, with negative attributes, you know, give them like they have flaws, um, but fully rounded characters and not just token characters. And then finally agency, like you said, that this is, they're not just there. You know, this is not just me assuaging myself as like, you know, oh, now I've included them in the story. No, it's like, no, they have a they have a real purpose in the story, uh, especially in again, this is Josiah's job problem <laughs> uh, plotline. Well, and I think that 
everything that you've been talking about. The, the point of this podcast is to talk about goodness, truth, and beauty through fiction. Mm-hmm. And I think this book does it so well. And I love the fact that the characters are really well developed and that they do have struggles and they do have agency. And even, um, you know, we've discussed heavily the the race issue, but you also tackle a lot of issues related to expectations on Molly based on being a woman of consequence. Right. Um, and Molly, Molly was a fun, has been, I think, a really interesting character for me to write. So um, a little bit about Molly. So again, Molly has, you know, we open with her. She's orphaned. She's an only child. And that that actually is also important to to the overall series arc, you know, that that her parents were never able to have any other children or rather they that they lost a, a number of children. And she's, you know, so she's the only daughter of a really prominent merchant who falls on hard times after the death of his wife, after Molly's mother passes away from cancer. And again, this is this is in the backstory. And the thing about Molly is that Molly is not just pretty because we expect a pretty heroine sometimes, you know, sometimes we have a play Jane and, and that was a nice trope too. Uh, but in this case, Molly is not just pretty. Molly is hot. And I feel like, you know, the difference, everybody knows the difference between those two, those two things. Molly is a girl with a figure and she attracts the notice of men. Now, the thing with Molly is that she's actually very introverted and she does not like the attention at all. And it's, it's, it's less, I'm not sure if it's, I think it might be a temperament thing. It might be sort of a training. Her mother uh, went to, you know, this, again, this is backstory stuff. Her mother went to, to great lengths to, you know, teach her um, how to look at others and care about others and see others. And it's a sort of curative for vanity um, or potential vanity on her daughter's part, you know, that if you're going to look like this, you need to work hard to, to think about other people and not yourself. So Molly is hot. And, and the men like her and the women are jealous. I had never thought I would write a character like this, but I, all of a sudden I realized as I was developing the story, you have a girl who grew up in an affluent family and she looks like this and how much body shaming would come along with this. And to the idea that there's one point, um, at one point in the story, there is a minor character, an old woman who is part of this, uh, this, there's a, there's a sort of scandal that kind of, that breaks out because of, uh, Josiah makes a really imprudent decision that draws a lot of attention to Molly. Um, and he, he, he unfortunately has left town. So Molly is left with to deal with the after effects of this, this decision. Uh, and one of these old women who's, you know, the, the hen house, the gossips, the gossips in town makes this comment about Molly. And she, she waves her hand in the air, kind of, you know, shaping curve, you know, curvaceously, you know, this, this is her figure and says, you know how it is with girls like that. And it's a nasty comment, you know, and to, to talk about, I know people like that, you know, um, uh, I know have family like that who who are very curvy and they just they say you do want, do you know how hard it is to find clothes that fit <laughs> you know that cover everything you know but you know it's, it's it's absolutely impossible to to hide the fact that you are shaped like a woman and then people assume things about you they assume that you're trying to be immodest you know I mean it's just and and even in Catholic circles we, we see this you know that there's there's a kind of assumption that any any woman who you know has a full figure is somehow uh, attempting immodesty when it's really not her fault um, 
Are you sure she's not just a succubus? <laughs> right. I mean, and it's, you know, I mean, and that's, that's, this is the question, you know, I mean, so, so Molly ends up, you know, having to deal with the society expectations, not only around her, not only around, you know, the morality or the supposed immorality of her living in a man's house that she's not married to, she's not related to technically, but she's in a situation that just demands that she's very good friends with this family. Josiah's mother is like a second mother and she needs, she needs some support. And then also the fact that, you know, she's suffering these PTSD flashbacks, which to the 18th century mind, you know, is a sign of madness. And as Mrs. Rob says, at one point, you know, nothing damns a, a girl's reputation so you know so quickly as 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 madness. You know, like this is to to earn a reputation like that. So they're hiding her illness, um, and so there's a whole situation that people just aren't aware of, and all they can do is assume that these two people are lovers, and that Mrs. Rob is facilitating this, and and of course it's not true, except that it is true because Josiah does in fact love her, and so you end up with these kind of interesting plot twists. But point being. You know, she's dealing with expectations outside of her control. And there's there's almost nothing you can do about it. Well, and she even is the the other thing that seems to drag her out of the boundaries that society has created for her is she chooses to be an entrepreneur right. as well. Right. Yeah. This is a really interesting 18th century thing. But one of the few professions open to women to run independently. Uh, were mantra making shops. So mantra making meaning dressmaking or, you know, seamstress work. The way that they made clothes at the time is that you fitted the clothing, you fitted the cloth to the person. And so they would come in, you know, whoever you, you know, the person who wanted something made and they would strip down all the way to their underwear. And the mantra maker, the seamstress would uh, cut the fabric you know, would pin it to them and, you know, shape it on their body. Not surprisingly, this was kind of a woman to woman thing. You know, men didn't do this for women, (laughs) you know, that this is, this, this wouldn't have been an appropriate thing to do. And so, you know, just as a, just by the nature of the thing, um, mantra making shops were typically run by women. So Molly has, yeah, and this is a kind of interesting thing too. Molly is a very talented uh, seamstress. Her mother, who in all other respects is very class conscious, her mother was an an English gentlewoman, you know, kind of carries her kind of her mother who's deceased by the, you know, the opening of the story, but her mother uh, carried some of those class consciousness, you know, those class mores over the pond to, you know, industrious America. But the one thing she does encourage is she does encourage Molly's, Molly's seamstress work. Um, Molly does it for her friends. She encourages it as an art, but she does it as a place of moral formation. That she teaches Molly that a real artist, and Molly considers this an art, a real artist is somebody who's attentive to other people. And so that the person who's making a dress, a gown for somebody else, is somebody who's going to pay attention to that to that person and try to draw out what's good in them and display it in in the things that they're wearing. Uh, so in any case, yeah, so there's there's the challenge with, with this book, um, Molly's particular challenge is she is in a situation where she is the damsel in distress. She is in a place of helplessness, uh, PTSD, and she's sick, uh, she's traumatized, and she's angry with her father. And she's also in a position of financial dependence and the robs take her in. But the, the driving... Thing. The driving goal for Molly for this whole book is she wants to take care of herself. 
And so this is where her seamstress work comes in right up, right off the bat. She's, she realizes I could, you know, maybe I could, I could make an income this way instead of just, you know, just doing it for my friends. Maybe I could actually do this, you know, and, and do something independent. And, and that's, and that's a big step forward. Yeah. And so the whole tension in the book, of course, is, is she's, she starts to take care of herself. And then of course, you know, she has a bad friend and then there's the rival who are really trying to put her back in the position of, oh, you know, just let somebody rescue you, you know, and actually that that's not going to be the best thing for her. That's not going to be the place where, as Mrs. Rob says, work is curative. You know, this is a place of healing. Uh, the, the desire for independence to be able to take care of herself is a sign that she is open to getting better. And so this is the challenge. This is Molly's challenge for the entire book. So in the Molly Chase series, and I don't want you to give us any spoilers or anything like that, but what I'll try. What experience do you want the reader to have through reading this series? This is a this is a really great question. Um, so one of the things that had happened when I started writing this book is that I thought I started out thinking I'm writing a really nice courtship stories. And that's sweet. You know, I'm going to write the, the best one I can and the most thoughtful one I can, but I'm writing a courtship story. And then I hit this place where I had solved, quote unquote, the courtship problem. Okay. So Molly and Josiah get together. This is, that is not a spoiler. Any romance reader knows they're, of course, they're going to get together. So I'm telling you, not telling you anything you don't know. I had solved the courtship plot, but I didn't solve the, the bigger problem, which is Molly's conflict with her father, her father who's dead, incidentally. So how do you, how do you resolve a problem with somebody who's died? And I, I realized this and I thought, oh, no, I'm not writing just a courtship story. I'm actually writing a bigger story. And it makes sense. You know, you don't just, you don't just solve these problems just really, you know, it's not that, that this is going to be a lifelong problem for her that she is going to to be growing through again and again. So that was the first thing. Um, the second thing is I did have a vision, her death and what that was going to be. I mean, and it was crazy because I had this and then I started weeping and I like cried for like three days straight. My husband was like, are you insane? <laughs> I'm like, I'm grieving, be quiet. <laughs> you know? This is someone who's lived in your head for like 10 years. Well, maybe not quite that long. You know, I've got other stories that, that I was working on earlier on, but quite some time, yes, yeah, several years of her living in my head and then she died on me in my imagination. And I was, <laughs> um, but what was really interesting about that was that it actually did give me an arc. And so this, this, this series follows a sort of uh, like kind of like a Sigurd Unstead's Kristen Lavin's daughter arc, you know, where you, you're taking on the life of one female protagonist is sort of art that that's the art, but the goal ultimately is sanctity. And if I can pull it off, I hope that's what we get. Um, Right now, um, I am hard at work in the muddy middle, what, they, what you know, writers call the muddy middle, which is the middle of the story, the big story, you know, um, book two. And, you know, and working on placing those, those pieces in place, you know, early in her marriage, um, putting all of the, the things, planting the seeds now for her to be able to grow toward that. So, for example, as we learn in, in, in book one, one of the things that's part of the setup of book one 
right in the opening chapter, we learn that Molly thinks she's stupid. Now, that is a point of great insecurity for her. And part of the reason she thinks she's stupid is because Josiah, when they were kids, made a smart alecky comment after she had made a mistake in her French lesson, a really kind of embarrassing mistake. And he made a a smart alecky comment saying she was stupid, you know, and so and she gave up on reading. And I thought, you know, and so we get here to and in Josiah, you know, in the course of book one, this comes out at one point, he realizes that he was responsible for the loss of her education as a kid. And so here I am in book two, and I'm thinking, okay, well, if the goal is sanctity, what does Molly need? One of the things that she needs is an interior life. You know, she's not a terribly pious person, but this is something that grows slowly. Um, By the end of book one, we have actually a real moment of reconciliation with God. But in order to grow in one's relationship with God, there there are certain things that need to be in place. So an interior life, she needs an interior life. Well, in order to pave the way for an interior life, what do you need? You need an intellectual life. That's part of what needs to be underneath supporting that, you know? So I'm looking at it going, okay, this girl, this girl needs to, to, you know, and there's some healing that needs to take place, you know? And, and, and largely, you know, her husband, now husband, you know, just who Josiah, like I said, this is, you know, early marriage. I'm not giving a spoiler away there, but that he's going to have to be in some way instrumental in the restoration of her intellectual life because he was the one to ruin it. <laughs> um, uh, and, and that this is important. So that's just something very small, but again, you know, the arc, the arc through suffering, the arc of the whole series of the scope of the whole series is sanctity. Um, it happens through a great deal of suffering, um, which I won't go into because that would be a spoiler right now. Again, on these smaller things, looking at characterization and saying, what is it that she needs? That sounds like a really good journey for us to look at because really can there be sanctity without suffering? And yet we live in this culture that convinces us that any suffering should be avoided, has no value, or, you know, it can even go with the idea of suffering is just punishment and that it that it doesn't take you to a good place. And so to see the message that it absolutely can take us to a good place is really important. Right. And this is something that comes up imme- almost immediately in book one, uh, the role of suffering. Molly is a sufferer. She's a suffering character. And uh, it comes out explicitly. I actually have Josiah is a bit of an armchair theologian. Um, uh, the he's and then there's it makes sense in the context of the the story and his his family of origin and things like that. Why this would be the case, but that he has you know he has the right answers. You know, thanks to Thomas Aquinas, has the right answers on the problem of suffering. And Molly coming back and saying, yes, but it's not, they're not satisfying. These are not satisfying answers, even if they're the right ones, quote unquote. And that, you know, that there's some, there's some sense of dealing with the problem of suffering through fiction or through showing what, what is the greater good, what, you know, this is the correct answer. What is the greater good that's going to come out of it? And, and trying to see that fictionally and trying to depict it fictionally, um, but without undermining the suffering itself, and also without being cute, <laughs> you know, I don't want to just be dismissive of of the very problem of suffering. Um, and so that's another thing through the series that I hope to show that Molly is a she is a suffering soul, but there is something also 
this particular character, there's something also kind of innocent and still kind of optimistic in her character that um, I think ultimately will win. We've talked about all these different themes that are in the Molly Chase series that are in In Pieces. And I want to know just really succinctly, what do you think it is about your writing that sets it apart from other historical fiction? Oh, goodness. Um, or shall I say historical romance? I think the Catholic angle is is one. You know, uh, there are other Catholics who write historical um, historical fiction and historical romance. Um, I think altogether, just the the vision of of I think of a rightly ordered human, a, a rightly ordered anthropology or theological anthropology is is a really big one that would set it apart. Um, what does theology of the body have to offer to um, to the love story? Those are those are interesting questions. I think those are kind of meta questions, uh, not necessarily you know inside the story, but um, those are questions that we can bring to it. Um, in terms of my own specifically, um, so my own style of writing, I am a dialogue writer. I love dialogue. Um, and you will see that, any reader will see that in the book. Um, I'm fond of banter. I'm fond of discourse. Um, and I, I am a third order Dominican, so this should not surprise that, that, that would not surprise anybody who knew me, um, and knows the Dominicans. Um, I like, I like writing action. I'm really bad at descriptive writing. I think I'm almost allergic to it. And so this is always something that I'm working on. Uh, so just as a quick pause, yeah. if our listeners aren't familiar, could you just briefly tell us what a lay Dominican is? Oh, a lay Dominican. Sure. Um, so the order of preachers, um, founded by St. Dominic, um, there are, you know, you have your friars, your priests, and you have your nuns and your religious sisters. And then there's the laity and the laity are incorporated into the order as lay members. Uh, and so, uh, traditionally called third order Dominicans, um, you know, contemporary called lay Dominicans, um, so exam uh, people who were lay Dominicans or third order Dominicans would be someone like St. Catherine of Siena um, or blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati. Um, they were third order Dominicans. Um, so there's a, quite a few of us, actually, um, <laughs> you know, and there's a, quite a few saintly third order Dominicans um, that are definitely worth people's time, you know, looking at too. Um, but uh, we have a, you know, we have a charism to preaching. We have a charism to the word. And so, yes, we do. And, you know, we like to argue. So <laughs> we have, we have a lot of words in our, in us. And I think it's just part of the, the temperament of the order. So anyway, so yes, I like dialogue. Uh, descriptive writing is a weakness of mine. I'm continually working on that. My editor is always like, you need more description. And I always have to tell myself, it's okay. It's okay. You could describe the scene. A lot of historical writers, actually, I find this quite often, a lot of historical writers get really, they love all those little details of, you know, silverware settings and, you know, <laughs> like all of the little things that make the world, you know, there's something called, um, I think, gown porn, uh, you know, that, that people get really, you know, they love to, you know, describe the dresses. And that's, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't really go into detail with these things. I actually am very interested in the political situation. I'm interested in action. I'm interested in the kind of movement of people in their context in that, that day and age. Um, and to the point now where like, if I describe a setting, my first go-to as a writer is to say, 
<clears throat> All right. So I have a scene where people are talking, but nothing, you know, I don't have any kind of space and place and setting, you know, I don't have a sense of the room and what people are doing. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put an 18th century object in somebody's hand. And that's going to be the sort of physical description. That's going to be the, the thing that they're going that, that by doing something 18th century, I'm describing the 18th century. So that's even my default. I just so just as a quick example, a couple quick examples. One, Josiah at one point brings out a box of toys. So we have 18th century toys. Uh, another example, one of my favorite scenes is Mrs. Rob is butchering a chicken. It's good stuff. Have you ever butchered a chicken? <laughs> have you ever butchered a chicken? I know. No, I I I have not butchered a chicken. Um that I it, but I hear it's a very it's messy It's not business, the end of the world. So. I've done it. It's not too shit. Yeah, because I'm crazy. So me and a girlfriend of mine, we went to a local (laughs) farm and helped with dispatching and cleaning chickens one day. That was, that was a friend date that we did. I know. Well, and I think, you know, but I mean, but this is, I mean, in terms of, this is in terms of style and in terms of, you know, what would make mine a little bit different. But, you know, honestly, I think um, my own willingness, there are a few things that are distinctive, I think, about this book. One is I don't shy away from denominational things. A lot of historical fiction that is written with a faithful audience in mind will shy away from specific denomination mention of denomination, especially in the Christian market. There's a long history of the reasons for that. A lot of different interesting reasons why people like editors, you know, routinely would say, oh, don't, don't bring up Presbyterian versus Methodist, you know, like don't leave that out, make it generic. And I am all over that because the, the Boston in 1793 is a really interesting place with the ratification of the constitution, the bill of rights, practice of free religion, the Massachusetts constitution of the, of the Commonwealth was changed to reflect that. And all of a sudden you have the practice of free religion in a place like Boston, which is traditionally congregationalist and with a little sprinkling of Episcopalian slash Church of England thrown in. And now we have, it's legal to practice as a Catholic. Um, the Unitarians are on the rise. Um, and so you have a very interesting landscape and it's fun to explore it. It's fun to, to do that. So that is actually, that is one of the places that's really unique. I am married to a theologian. So between my historical interests and my husband's theological expertise, I think, <laughs> I think that comes out in this book. Uh, but yeah, but the, for the most part, this book is fun. I mean, it's just fun. <laughs> and that, that, I, that I also appreciate. That's great. So you told us you're working on book two in Molly Chase, that you're in the thick of it. So is there anything else coming out from you? Or are you strictly working on Molly Chase's series right now? Uh, I think my editor would kill me if I worked on anything other than Molly Chase. Um, I love you, Marisa. I know you're out there. Um, But no, I, I, um, so book two is, is, Theoretically, it's it's drafted. I'm in the kind of in the, the deep part of developmental edits. And the other piece of this is that I am expecting, I'm about 14 weeks along with my, my sixth child, and I have almost zero brain width, uh, bandwidth in the brain for anything beyond uh, one story at a time. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so we are working very quickly and, and very hard on book two. Um, and so trying to get this out to readers as um, quickly as art will allow. Well, and that's the key is because we want that good art. We want these good, true and beautiful things out there. And so take all the time you need to get it just right. 
And how about with Chrism Press? What what exciting things are coming up with them? Okay, well, that's a great question. Um, thank you for asking. Uh, so, Chrism, we we opened our doors um, in July, uh, August of 2020, and since then, um, the first book we published, um, we did a re-release of Pistolary novella by um, Eleanor Borg Nicholson called uh, The Letters of Magdalene Montague, which is very, very good. So it's a revised and re-released novella. Uh, September, we released Eleanor's Brother Wolf, which is a sister novel to A Bloody Habit, um, which was published by Ignatius Press um, several years ago. And Brother Wolf is written in the Gothic tradition, in the literary Gothic tradition. So no sparkly, no sparkly vampires. No, this is not Twilight, you know, with the werewolf vampire thing. It's not that at all. This is written in an older tradition where the preternatural characters are in fact evil <laughs> and, you know, a depiction of the spiritual warfare. It's almost like it's almost like spiritual warfare incarnate is basically what it is in a, in a kind of literary sense um, or a symbolic literary sense, you know. Um, the characters themselves are almost symbolic in that way. Um, and it's a lot of fun. I really like it. Uh, Brother Wolf is great. Then mine came out. Um, we have a little bit of a, a lull over the holidays. And then in February, we have Maya Sinha's The City Mother, which is a contemporary kind of uh, almost hipsterish book about a mother, uh, about a woman who's a city dweller, <laughs> hence, the, hence the title. And uh, about her, basically, that she's struggling with a sort of psychological breakdown, or what we think is a psychological breakdown. And it's fantastic. It's really funny. Maya, Maya is a humor columnist for the Saturday Evening Post. And you could just, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a, the, the book is, is written in more of a literary style. I guess I would say the, the topics are more of a literary genre, literary genre topics. But she has such a great voice and great sense of irony and timing that it doesn't have the, it doesn't, it's not overwhelmingly serious, which I think is, makes for a really good story. Um, after that, K. Park Hinckley, um, the shooting at Heaven's Gate, also a contemporary, also literary fiction. Um, and that one is set in Alabama. Uh, where Kay lives. So we have kind of a tradition of the Southern Gothic. Um, I wouldn't call this Gothic, but, you know, it's in that that Southern literary tradition is what Kay writes in. Um, we have Rosanna White, who is not Catholic, um, but she wrote a book about Catholics. She wrote a book about the mafia, um, Chicago mafia, um, called Shadowed Loyalty. That's a historical romance. Rosanna is um, she's a best-selling author in the Christian market. She's a good friend of mine. She's the owner of our, she and her husband own our parent company, Whitefire. And she just happened to have this manuscript in her, you know, in the back of her desk drawer, basically, because Rosanna writes like, a, I mean, she writes so quickly. She's amazing. <laughs> but she happened to have this and we're like, we'll take it. <laughs> and then after that, we have a sci-fi fantasy by a new author, also debut author, um, Mary Jessica Woods, and it's called Mark Maker. And this one is a almost, I, I have to say, it's, it's like deeply sacramental. Basically, the, uh, the premise is there's an alien race where tattoos are what they use to celebrate major events and also to mark everything that is important in their life. And they basically, so everything that is important to you or deeply part of your identity is tattooed on you. The tattoo artist is a sort of priestly figure that is bound to truth-telling 
they have these really strict rules to follow. And uh, if they veer from that, it's almost like breaking the seal of confession. And so the the main character, the premise of the book is 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 a the the main character of Mark Maker is a tattoo artist who breaks some rules in order to help um, sort of a, some untouchables that live at the bottom of the ship, you know, are kind of buried in the ship. And what he ends up doing is sort of sparking a war. Wow. This way. <laughs> so, um, and I will tell you, and, and the, I, I always tell people this, I cannot stand science fiction. This is not my genre. Uh, my brain does not work like this. If I see sci-fi on, this, on the TV, I'm like, ugh. But I love this book. Uh, it's really good. It's really, really good. So that's what's coming up soon. And, you know, we are very excited to be able to offer a, a pretty wide variety of stories for um, with Catholic and Orthodox uh, voices. Mary is Byzantine Catholic. So we have to, we are hoping someday, we really, really do want to source somebody who is Orthodox uh you know, an Orthodox writer. Um, we, we've had several, you know, really promising manuscripts come through, but for whatever reason did not work out. So, but we are definitely open there. So if you have any listeners who are Orthodox and they write and they're looking to submit, chrismpress.com <laughs> um, and Catholics too. You know, we are definitely, we used to open su- to submissions. We take queries that are not submitted through agents, um, which is really important. I know for a lot of Catholics, it's, it's sometimes hard to find an agent anyway, um, but it's sometimes hard to find an agent if you are in this market, which is a kind of a niche market. So just so you know, we are open to submissions. Very much looking forward to just bringing the world a wide variety of, of stories. I think that's fantastic. It does sound like an incredible variety that you guys are offering. And now, are you ready for a little bit of variety? Sure. (laughs) It's time for the rando round, where I have my list of 100 over-caffeinated questions. (laughs) And you have 30 seconds to answer all of them. Oh. No, (laughs) not really. No, no, there there is no time limit on that. (laughs) But you get to pick. I have percentile dice, like used in gaming. Uh I have tie-dye. Or I have pink sparkles. Oh, goodness. Let's go pink sparkles. I'm not a pink girl, but why not? (laughs) Well, they're pink and it's hard to see. And so I'm describing it for our listeners. They're not actually pink sparkles. They are pink dice with kind of like a mermaid green glitter inside. Oh, so it's pink and glitter. It's most fabulous. Okay. Well, fan. I'm, I'm a fan of fabulous. And so here we go with our rando round, my friend. All right. I've got 79. I feel like I'm calling out bingo. <laughs> what is your least favorite part of your job? Sending rejection letters. <laughs> Oh, I can see that. That would be so hard. I hate that. Well, you know, I'm a writer. I know what it's like to get a rejection letter. I hate rejection letters. I really do. I am, and, and, and I will say, we have this joke behind the scenes that I am the good cop. So sending rejection letters is very difficult for me. It's, I don't like it. Understood. Understood. <laughs> I, I think I would have a really hard time with that as well. Let's see what the dice call on next. 42, the answer to everything. Are you afraid of spiders? Um, depends on how big they are. Um, I don't like smushing them. I prefer to use a vacuum cleaner. 
I'm one of those. I'll just like, get the vacuum hose out and just vacuum them up. I, you know, I grew up in Oregon and I, and in East in Western Oregon where insects are very small. So I'm, <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't really like big insects. I will just say that I did live in, I went to school in Annapolis, Maryland, and that was my first encounter with, you know, bugs. Uh, and you know, the joke, the joke, of course, uh, I have lots of Southern relatives and friends who are Southerners and they just look at me like, I'm a big weenie, but that's. Have you ever visited anywhere tropical? No. Tropical places have enormous bugs. So you just got to, you just learn to deal, I guess. I guess so. Or see the beauty in it, I'm sure. You know, all God's creation is beautiful. That's. They have their that's place. That's right. Yeah, I have to remember that. No, I really just want to smush them. But. <laughs> all right. Let's see what else we got here. 77. How is your life different than you had imagined it? Oh, goodness. Um, so when my husband and I got married, we assumed we would do like the stereotypical, well, I think in our head was the ideal, quote unquote, the, the ideal, I'm being sarcastic, uh, Catholic life where we have, you know, a football team of children. And um, that didn't happen. Uh, it took, we had five years of infertility. And in that time period, um, we learned that children are not to be demanded. They are a gift. They're God's gift. And also realizing that for me, that there was a lot of, there were a lot of vocational questions um, that had not been resolved. Uh, so five years into our marriage, we finally found out we were expecting. Amazing. So you think, and at the time I thought, oh, this is the answer to all the problems. I just going to be a mom. Uh, it turned out that that was not in fact the case because I was... <laughs> I mean, like, I'm so, I was so, I had such horrible postpartum depression after the, after the birth of our eldest. Um, and a lot of those vocational questions on top of that were not resolved. And so I ended up through this process, you know, doing a lot of uh, personal healing. It was a very good year and a lot of work on myself. And then through the process, that's when I started writing. Um, I never thought I would be a fiction writer. That was not something I set out in my life to do. But when it happened, when I had an idea and when it, when it was something that my husband and I were agreed on that we were like, this is something you should pursue. This is something I should pursue. And my husband was fully on board, has been fully on board. He's my biggest cheerleader and my biggest, the person who enables this and makes this happen, you know, and here we are 10 years later, you know, have my first novel out. So yeah, so that, so being a writer was definitely, being a fiction writer was definitely not in the cards or not something I had expected my life to, to, I didn't expect it. So, but here we are. And doesn't he always surprise us? You know, when we first got married, we really were, you know, just playing on what we thought were the quote, were the right thing to do. We thought, you know, just have a family, which is exactly the right thing to do. The picture in our head and the reality of the way it played out. And then also me as a person, and what it was that God had in store for me and that God was asking of me, the way the details of that worked out were very different than the way they played out in our heads. And so uh, I'm very grateful for it because um, I feel like, yeah, God's plans are way better than mine. God knows better, you know, than what I think were the stereotypes, you know, that I was trying to live up to, or I was trying to plan my life according to, and then it just didn't work out. Um, 
And that's good. That's a good thing. That's a great message for us. My last question for everybody is always, what gives you hope right now? I think one of the things that gives me hope is knowing that as to the best of my ability, I'm living in God's will for my life. And as hard as that can be on a daily level, and as much as I don't see the fruits of it fully right now, that if I'm doing the thing he wants, then he will make what he wants happen from it. Um, and also that, you know, God God takes loaves and fishes and um, can can work miracles out of it. Um, especially, I, I know a lot of people out there will, will empathize with this. You know, I, you know, I'm, like I had said just now, um, I'm, I'm 14 weeks pregnant. I'm trying to meet a bunch of deadlines. And of course, I'm exhausted. Right? I'm 40 and I'm pregnant. <laughs> and this is this is not easy being being pregnant at this age, especially when I have five at home. And um, but at the same time, like his power is greater than mine, and um, and he will make all the things that need to happen happen. Um, and that ultimately, this is going to. You say, well, you know, I mean, you have the, the double, the, you know, the twofold side of say, you know, I'm only a useless servant. But on the other hand, knowing that in just being trusting and um, obedient, that someday he'll, he'll hopefully, God willing, will say, you know, well done, good and faithful servant. So I am useless servant but hopefully a faithful one. It reminds me of what Mother Teresa said, that we are not called to be successful. We are called to be faithful. Yeah. Yeah, that's such a great quote, you know. And it's the the successful part, you know. Um, I don't, I, I think about, you know, writing. Nobody goes into writing to make money. Um, they shouldn't. If, if somebody out there is planning on, on going into writing to make money, they really, it's, it's definitely a, a, a labor of love. So, so many days, I don't have any expectations of, you know, fame and fortune, but I do have the hope that if this is what I'm supposed to be doing, then it's going to have the impact on the people that it needs to, that it needs, it's going to do the work that it needs to do, um, you know, for God's greater glory. And, and, and it's, you know, it's being a writer, as you know, is um, sometimes a really lonely thing. You put things out in the world and you don't always get feedback from people. Um, you just don't know. You don't know how people are going to take it and who's going to have, who it's going to have an impact. There's a very, there's a, there's a lot of anonymity in this profession and you do it anyway. You know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, don't necessarily do it for, you know, applause, but doing it because that's just part of the makeup of my person. This is the way God has wired me even though I didn't know it for many, many years. Um, he's shaping me through it. Well, thank you so much, Rhonda, for all of your insights, for sharing Molly and Josiah with us. I'm really grateful for this time that we got to share together. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. I really do. 
I thoroughly enjoyed my time with Rhonda as well as the time I spent reading her book in pieces. I hope that you also have the opportunity to check this out and I look forward to all the rest of the books in the Molly Chase series. Find her work at RhondaOrtiz.com. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation, click on the follow button for more tales every other Tuesday. And in the meantime, read stories that matter because you are living one.